Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the show, I sit down with my better three quarters, Skylar, to discuss my health journey, which includes reversing my prediabetes and losing 60 pounds. She and I discuss the plethora of common symptoms that I started to experience upon entering my late 40s, some that you might relate to, including brain fog, chronic fatigue, skin tags, the inability to concentrate, and the need to endlessly check my phone. Does any of that sound familiar? Well, all of these prosaic presentations are indicators of metabolic dysfunction, and they sit upstream from our most common chronic diseases like heart disease, diabetes, and dementia. Skyler and I discuss the protocols I leveraged across my journey, how and why they work, and how they can stack. I talk about weight management and the role of calories and hormones, and we talk about creating upward spirals of health. And this was a great opportunity for me to share what I've learned and applied across almost 500 episodes of this podcast. Okay, but before we dive in, we're so grateful to those of you who write reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created a special offer for you, three days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review and you'll receive your free all access for 30 days. Note that if you're on your laptop, you'll need to click listen on Apple Podcasts to open the app. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed. Additionally, if you are interested in courses on functional medicine, nutrition, gut health, meditation, Ayurveda, yoga, happiness, <laughs> well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire treasure trove of courses, including more than 130 courses on spiritual and physical health. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. Without further delay, I present to you my conversation with Skylar. So here we are down in your lair. Um, and we just, we thought it would be interesting to have a conversation about, about metabolism and food and health generally, especially around, around weight and on your personal journey. And I see, I see my job here as, um, keeping you speaking in layperson's terms because you can get real technical and my brain it doesn't work that way so i'm just going to check you on <laughs> on your on your mansplaining if you fall asleep um yeah I'll if, I, know. if i if i if my head hits the mic you'll know you've got to backtrack um and i'd like to start if you don't mind um with me giving my perspective on you uh because i've seen you I've seen you naked or semi-clad every day for the last 35 years. And Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a real honor. Um, and it's been honestly um, fascinating 
to watch this this evolution that you've been going through for the the last two years and kind of mind-blowing as your partner to see what has happened to your body and your health um and my own uh view on physiology has been has been totally upended watching your journey and what i understood to be um written in our genes has really has really been upended and that's been really cool and kind of startling um so you know we met when you were 17 and i was 18 and um, you were pretty fit at that time. You'd been a tennis player and you were playing some basketball. But even when you were fairly fit and yo-yoed between fit and sort of not so fit through your late teens and 20s, you were always a little soft. Like you're, you always had this layer of kind of subcutaneous fat. And even if you were strong, you never really had much muscle. And our narrative and my understanding about your body was that you were just genetically a little less fit than me. <laughs> and that you'd been dealt some less optimal genetic cards. And I, you know, I was just always pretty naturally thin and came from a thin family and your half Jewish genes just left you a little soft around the middle and, um, and unable to gain muscle the way that I could. And we would sort of joke that uh, we basically ate the same amount of food and I was five, five and 115 pounds and you were six feet and 180 pounds. And that was just what it was. Cause that was, that was written in our, in our genes. And, you know, we believe that both of us believe that for 30 something years. And then right in front of my eyes, I've watched you be an N of one experiment and, and like totally blow my mind. And the really, I would say just from my perspective, the thing that's been most incredible about it is not it's really not the weight piece because your weight has gone up and down, but it's really that your shape has changed just completely. And like where you used to have like, you know, fairly thin arms and a, and then you sometimes would have a stomach, sometimes you wouldn't. And then you, but you had kind of like more like sounds horrible, but like more like womanly hips and thighs. And you now just have a completely different lower body to upper body proportion. And it's like not, it's really so far beyond a, a, you know, BMI to actually like a reshaping of your, of your, of your physiology. So that's just been wild to watch and impressive. Um, and as you get healthier, I tend to just drink more because that's, that's the balance of balance. And your body shape doesn't change. And, so, and my, yeah. Not too much. Um, but anyway, so I, I, you know, a, I just, you know, I don't, I, I don't think I probably tell you, um, enough how impressive I, I, you, 
you are. And so I will use this public forum to tell you that you are. It's been it's been quite amazing to observe from from the sidelines. So maybe from your perspective, um, you can just talk a little bit about, you know, your journey from prior to age 17 forward. Yes. Well, thank you. And um, yeah, the purpose of this interview is not to adulate my ego, though. Consider it adulated enough. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously you see the superficial presentations of the work that I've done and that's nice to be recognized, but really the, the way that I present in my body is really a, a reflection of healthy processes that are going on inside of my body. And we can, um, discuss probably at some length what those are, but you know, maybe I'll just kind of start with some of the more kind of psychosocial dimensions of weight, particularly in connection with my own kind of personal experience, because, you know, I grew up as a very, very chubby kid. And that experience really kind of punctuated my entire childhood. I was also moving around internationally every six months to every year. So I was being thrust into new environments in a new language as a chubby kid. And what do kids want more than anything? They want belonging or what I considered at that juncture, probably more akin to fitting in. And, you know, when you're chubby, no matter where you are in the world, that is very difficult and kids are cruel. And I was the target of a lot of that cruelty. And, you know, Gabor, I remember he said this when he was in Topanga last time is that humans, but particularly kids will always sacrifice their authenticity for belonging. And that really hit somewhere deep in me because what I realized is that to compensate for my chubbiness, I became a people pleaser. And this is just so common Mm -hmm. among so many people. I think anyone who's listening to this that has any kind of body dysmorphia or, or, um, you know, obsession. Anything that sets them apart makes them feel other. Will always try to compensate in other ways and sacrifice their on their authenticity often to fit in. Um, and, that was a, uh, you know, a signature of much of my life was being a people pleaser, trying to kind of anchoring my own self-esteem through the eyes of others. Um, and, you know, that is that feeling or that phenomenon is so concomitant with weight in our particular culture. So, you know, as, as you said, I, I had these yo-yo experiences um, with weight and, um, and then, you know, really as I kind of entered my late forties, I was struck with some of the same kind of like very common, almost like boring prosaic symptoms that are so, um, prevalent, you know, the brain fog, the chronic fatigue, the, inability to focus, 
insomnia, um, insomnia, the irritability, and then some of the more kind of bespoke um, <laughs> presentations of of metabolic syndrome, essentially being overweight, but also having insulin resistance. Um, you know, I started to develop these little tags, like brown tags under my arms. I remember. Um, another presentation that's common among people is like little brown um, bumps on the back of their necks or on their necks. It says often a representation of insulin resistance, um, which is really kind of at the core of kind of metabolic dysfunction. Um, and, you know, I was getting sick a lot. I had a very compromised immune system, uh, probably what I would call like an overreactive immune system. Um, and, you know, this was really as COVID reared its ugly head and I contracted it three times, but the first time, you know, pretty severely. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I really had to take a closer and deeper look at my own health, not just from how I appeared physically, um, but also like what was really upstream um, that was causing these symptoms. And then also a lot of weight fluctuation. And then, you know, that classic dad body presentation where, you know, you start to develop additional adiposity around your midsection and quote unquote love handles and, and things like that. Nice things like man boobs. And yeah, <laughs> and not necessarily a cups. Um, and I think, you know, this is really a, key point to underscore because there's really a lot of reasons to be concerned about weight and then there's very specific reasons not to be concerned about it um so weight when stored as excess fat is important is concerning for health weight as some futile attempt to chase unattainable visions of Instagram perfection, that is also a pathology. Um, body dysmorphia is so related to all sorts of mental disorders and you know, that's a whole separate um, episode. But I think that that's very important to delineate is that we need to be able to have very open, um, non-careful conversations about weight, excess adiposity, and health in a way that doesn't shame people and in a way that's very, very separate and, and also clearly distinguished between weight management as a, kind of, you know, in chase of some beauty standard. Mm -hmm. So, while also being able to talk about the health implications of excess weight and not feel scared that you can't say something that's going to be looked at as quote unquote fat shaming, which isn't constructive either. I mean, there's a way to like, like put health and that means physiological and psychological health as the premium in front of being both careful, as you said, but also, you know, being honest, but also being intelligent. So yes. Agreed. Yeah. And it's honestly why I often try to frame it in geeky scientific terminology because that sort of is an attempt to kind of remove more of the shame aspect of it. Um, you know, 
I will always look in the mirror and see a fat person or a chubby person. I still do. That is a psychological pathology that I will kind of need to deal with. And I continue to deal with it generally in fairly healthy ways. But that is something that is deep. And so I have great, great compassion for people that, uh, that struggle with this issue because I've been there and I'm still there. As it pertains strictly, um, you know, to health, I think it's important to, to sort of think about weight in particular ways. I mean, weight as muscle, and muscle is actually quite heavy, is health conferring. And so this mm -hmm. is why on an individual basis, metrics like BMI aren't very um, accurate. Epidemiologically, on a kind of a, on, you know, a huge numbers basis, BMI can be a decent metric, but as it pertains to like individual metrics, it's not because you can be, you know, have a lot of lean, uh, body mass and a lot of muscle and, um, and be, you know, have a BMI in the high twenties. So, right. um, but when weight is stored, as excess fat beyond your storage capabilities, it becomes dangerous to your health in a whole variety of ways. So everyone, as I understand it, has certain fat storage capacities. And, you know, fat really is just warehoused energy. It's repositories of energy that you haven't used yet. And so they're very useful, <laughs> um, less useful now in sort of the modern age of sort of chronic ease or chronic convenience where we have a surfeit of calories available almost at all times and we don't experience scarcity, but we were evolved to be fat at certain times of the year because scarcity was around the corner. Typically this was obviously in the fall and the harvest we were literally engineered to store fat. Now, generally, we were engineered to store that fat uh, subcutaneously, sort of under the skin. So women tend to do that in their hips and in their buttocks. And yeah, that may not always translate amazingly to Instagram, but it's actually pretty healthy. Subcutaneous fat, the fat that you can sort of pinch that's right under your skin, is actually not particularly caustic or inflammatory. Um, it's just a, a relatively safe place to store fat. It's also a good cushion. Um, and it's also an endocrine gland. Fat cells are, are endocrine organs and, and they're responsible for leptin and, um, and it's in your fat cells that testosterone can get converted to estrogen. There's a lot happening there, but in Once, both men and women, or is that a primarily more a function of, of female hormonal health? Uh, both, really. I mean, that is actually the, without getting too sort of diverted here, the, you know, um, there is a particular enzyme that is prevalent in fat cells called aromatase. That particular enzyme converts androgens, testosterone, to estrogen. So men that have like big tummies, 
generally have very low testosterone because in those fat cells, the testosterone is being converted to estrogen. That's why that's also why, why man, man boobs, boobs because <laughs> though it's a, a secondary sexual characteristic of high levels of estrogen. Um, and well, let me just, do, sorry, yeah. let me just un get clear again. And so is this happening in subcutaneous fat or visceral fat or both? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's more, um, certainly visceral fat is the more toxic, dangerous fat. So, you know, we used so to So get into that a little so, bit more just yeah. from a terminological perspective, like visceral fat being the so internal. The visceral fat that develops around your organs, mm -hmm. kind of in your abdomen, in and around your abdomen. So around your liver and your guts um, and your adrenals and your kidneys, et cetera. And can you have visceral fat but not have subcutaneous fat? Uh, yes, to some degree. I mean, if you remember when we used to go visit my grandparents in Southern Florida, right? That and there big would barrel be this stomach. big barrel, hard stomach, right? That's actually the most dangerous presenting kind of fat, right? Because what that is indicating is that there is a lot of weight stored as fat, but it's not here on the outside. It's all there on the inside. Right. So when you have that kind of big drum of a big belly, yeah. that's mostly visceral fat. Yeah. Well, generally the apple shape, mm -hmm. you know, versus the pear shape. That's really kind of the sort of layperson's way to think about it. And if somebody, sorry to keep no, asking, but so, but if somebody has quite a bit of subcutaneous fat, is there any way to know or assume? that they have visceral fat is like, how would one know that one has, I mean, I get the visceral fat piece, that taut kind of drum, like big belly. But if you have like a fair amount of, of subcutaneous fat, how would you know whether you have a, a fair amount of the more dangerous visceral because, fat? Because I mean, and this is like gets into the gray areas of like my knowledge base, but Subcutaneous fat, generally you have a certain amount of it that you can fill up with triglyceride stored fat. And then you start to essentially accumulate, that starts to spill over into visceral fat. You, everyone has a certain sort of a threshold for uh -huh. storage. And then you become, uh, then you begin to store fat viscerally and ectopically. That's the other sort of internal fat that's on or in the organ itself. So like oh. liver fat might be called ectopic fat. I think ectopic just means like in the wrong place because you can have an ectopic pregnancy. pregnancy I, right, right. I think that's just what it means in the wrong place. And it certainly is in the wrong place when it's in your liver or your pancreas. That's what fatty liver disease is? Yeah, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease um, generally uh, points to ectopic fat on the no. liver. And that is a very, very common condition now um mm. that's not sclerosis due to alcohol it's although alcohol can certainly play a part in because it's highly caloric and we'll talk about that um it can certainly play a role in the development of visceral and ectopic fat as well but we're not talking about alcoholic you know sclerosis derived or liver disease so, okay, wait, well, and then I, we can move on from this exactly, but I actually want to par parse through one more thing. 
why do some people develop visceral fat only and don't but don't seem to have any subcutaneous fat what would like why would is that genetic like or is that what I think they're to some degree i think there is some genetic component to it uh you know again that's pushes like a little bit into the gray areas of like do people have a fixed amount of subcutaneous fat that they can store into um there's certain, I've heard certain arguments in support of that. It's like once you essentially meet the threshold of your fat storage capabilities, that's when you begin to store visceral fat and ectopic fat. And then that spills into muscle. Then muscle actually gets marbled like a steak and your muscles mm. become insulin resistant. But sometimes you see people who have like skinny arms and legs and literally almost no subcutaneous fat. And then that bit like, but so that so those yeah, people so, just really don't have any subcutaneous fat stores to fill up. So when they gain weight, it just goes right into their viscera. Yeah, and those that's actually often the most dangerous um, mm -hmm. cases. I think there's a name for that called tofi, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. Mm -hmm. I think that's a Robert Lustig moniker, um, and that can be very dangerous because mm -hmm. you can appear to be quote unquote healthy, but um, you're clearly not because once visceral fat starts to accumulate um you know and I, I mentioned one of the impacts of that is that it can spill into muscle and can make muscle uh insulin resistant so when that happens muscle develops an energy problem it cannot uptake glucose out of the bloodstream into its muscle into its Fibers. technically mm -hmm. mitochondria for energy production so, you know, that can lead to atrophy. You can also have, you know, probably like cardiomyopathy, which, you know, is that same condition, but as it relates to the heart. heart. Um, but also as fat cells in your viscera begin to grow, um, kind of through hypertrophy, um, you know, there's two ways that cells grow. One is called hyperplasia. That's the number of cells. But then the other way is the size of the cell. Mm -hmm. And once the size of the cell grows, a fat cell, it can become hypoxic and it becomes very, very inflammatory and begins to essentially spill over inflammatory adipokines, cytokines that then both, so that then cause more insulin resistance. So this is the vicious cycle. The insulin resistance causes the development of visceral fat. Mm -hmm. The visceral fat then becomes hypoxic and then that causes more insulin resistance and you are on a downward spiral there. So there's also, because of insulin resistance, there's all these different other pathologies associated with that. Obviously, type 2 diabetes being kind of the elephant in the room and that you know leads to all sorts of problems, neuropathy and retinopathy and all this kind of things, but then also cancer because... I think you need to backtrack for okay. me just a little bit and talk about what insulin resistance is just in case, you know, there's not a baseline understanding yeah. of... Sure. So insulin is a hormone. A hormone is a chemical messenger. It is produced by beta cells in the pancreas particular organ that produces a number of hormones, in this case, insulin. The primary role of insulin is to usher 
carbohydrates or glucose specifically to cells for the production of energy at the mitochondrial level. Insulin is also an anabolic hormone, which means growth. It promotes growth in all, in different cells. In fact, different organs and different cells react to insulin slightly differently, but you can think of insulin generally as an anabolic hormone versus a catabolic hormone. And anabolism and catabolism are the two core elements, the yin-yang, the teeter-totter of metabolism. So your body breaks things down through catabolism and it builds things up through anabolism, like muscle. So it's like... Well, and, and is, is insulin produced exclusively in response to carbohydrates, glucose that we intake through food or also because of other external factors like stress? So it is certainly connected to stress, but through the same mechanism. So stress, if you have like a endocrine response to stress, so something stressful happens in your life, your HPA axis, which is a primary endocrine axis in your body, then releases like glucocorticoids, cortisol, for example, from your adrenal glands. Mm -hmm. So your normal stress response would be to release cortisol. That is going to stimulate the liver to release glucose. Got it. And then insulin will follow. Okay. And that is a adaptive um, response as part of your sympathetic nervous system response. So if you were to encounter a stressful situation within nature, as we used to 10,000, 20,000 years ago, you would want exactly that response. You'd want stress, you'd want cortisol, you want glucose shooting out to your muscles mm -hmm. because you need to run, you need to fight, fight or flight, right? So that is a normal adaptive response. The problem is, is that we live within a time of chronic stress. So with many people, we have this HPA axis always stimulated. We have cortisol always mm -hmm. being released. And then subsequently, then we have the release of glucose. And then of course, in response to glucose, the pancreas is like, we need more insulin. And so we get into a state mm -hmm. of chronic high insulin. It's called hyperinsulinemia. And, and here, that can be just really stress related, not even if you have like a fantastic low glycemic diet, but you're chronically stressed. Can I tell my story? Sure. So, um, you know, Jeff's been wearing this continuous glucose monitor now for a year and a half which has been probably the, the most transformational gadget that you've, you've put on and the continuous glucose monitor m monitors your glucose levels and tells you when you're spiking, whether you're low, whether you're high. This is how you found out that you were pre-diabetic. Shocking to both of us. Um, and so then I finally slapped one on last winter and I, you know, I figured it I was probably fine, but maybe I was Tofi. Um, and yeah. so 
I, I put one on. I figured I would just do it for two, two to four weeks, unless, of course, I found out some sort of unpleasant numbers and put it on. It took a day or two to kind of calibrate. First, it seemed like it was high, but you said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It just takes a couple of days to kind of get used to your body um, or your body to it. And then I was very regular, you know, sort of in, in range, as I guess one would say. And um, I definitely noticed I, my diet maybe wasn't as good as I thought it was because I was eating, I for sure ate and drank things that spiked me in not the best ways, but it was clear that if I wanted to be healthier, I could, and that my baseline glucose levels, my fasting glucose levels were solid. And then about 10 days in, um, and I had, I was down at around 80, which I guess is a pretty solid resting glucose. And then I'll go up to 140, 150 if I, you know, had big two, two cupcakes or something. And that was it. And then I, I, I was monitoring it, but I wasn't really, you know, it wasn't that interesting to me anymore. And then my dad had that, that huge, very major health crisis. And I, I was monitoring, but I wasn't really paying attention because I was so consumed with going up to visit him and, you know, hospital and it was very dramatic. And then I looked back on my glucose levels after, um, at, at that point, And I was up in like the two hundreds pretty much, but across the board all day long with a few little dips. And I was just like, that's incredible. I mean, we hear all the time that stress is the killer, you know, it's just, we all sort of get it, but to actually see that was so on, I mean, it was so eye opening. and okay. Yeah, that's fine. I was obviously, it was a crisis point and you know, I have enough, I sure I'm, you know, I have enough metabolic fitness to withstand a couple of weeks of like crazy spikes, but for people who are chronically stressed, you know, whatever, there's so many ways to be stressed, environmentally stressed for your, you know, situation. Obviously I was like, well, that is just, it's so interesting to really look under the hood and see those numbers. And our daughter had this a similar experience just in this last month, you know, summertime, low, 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 went to school, first day at school, 200, yeah. you know? So let me give you the headline there. Stress management is weight management. And let me then now write the mm -hmm. article in a relatively Newtonian way because, you know, we want to kind of show sort of how these things happen by analogy with billiard balls. I hit the cue ball, then the cue ball hits the two ball that hits the four ball that hits the eight ball mm -hmm. in the corner pocket. That's just the way humans generally explain things. So I'll try to explain it that way but knowing that there's a lot of other factors happening everywhere all at once. So you get stressed, you release stress hormones, stress hormones release uh, glucose, glucose stimulates the release of insulin over time in the body. And this is just a general rule that the excess of any one molecule will cause a resistance to itself. So over time, elevated levels of insulin mm -hmm. will cause a resistance to insulin. So when cells are no longer sensitive to insulin and they're not taking glucose in, 
for the production of energy, you, it is storing then that glucose as fat, as triglycerides generally in adipocytes, fat cells. So there you have your chain link fence of why stress causes weight gain. And if that wasn't clear, mm -hmm. I'll try to make it even clearer. That's pretty clear, but go ahead. It, it, it's really that what you are doing in that particular case, and this really, I think, leads into what I hope we talk a little bit more kind of broadly and a little bit more poetically about the nature of weight is it is just a form of energy and either we're using and burning that energy or we're storing that energy and and that is really the the essence of what weight and weight management is but why is it do you think or maybe you um, maybe there are people who've really studied this but i don't really understand the the evolutionary logic to chronic stress leading to this cascade of metabolic well, events that lead to yeah, well, insulin, we weren't evolved, insulinemia. We weren't evolved to be chronically, chronically stressed. stressed. We were evolved to have short bursts of acute stress that would trigger that very phenomenon, that very kind of billiard ball phenomenon that I just outlined. Because and then we would, stress would that because it's a good thing when it's a great we're thing. stressed to like store a bunch of fat because then when well no just it's a good thing to have glucose being being secreted from your liver when you need a burst of energy in your muscles to run from some odd to right. ungulate um, right or, or fight or a fight fight, fight right. the tiger um, so that is the primary reason. Then the secondary reason to store fat is because of impending scarcity. Mm -hmm. So really what you have here is fat gets kind of stored. There, there's like a couple of different competing um, theories of why fat gets stored. And I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle, as usual. It's really a combination between those two things. One is a pure thermodynamics argument calories in, calories out, calories that don't get expended get stored as fat and you gain weight. So that's the thermodynamics argument. And I think that is worth going into a little bit deeper. And then you have the endocrine argument, which is that certain hormones, chemical signals, signalers in the body tell the body to do different things with calories. Mm -hmm. It says in some cases, burn them, use them right now. Some cases it says store them for various reasons. So like, for example, when, um, when we used to, you know, before there was endless availability of shelf stable refined calories and we were, you know, hunter gatherers or foragers, we would, uh, harvest figs. It wasn't really harvest. We'd come upon mm -hmm. a fig tree and gorge on them when they were ripe in the fall. And figs have sort of a mix of glucose and fructose in them. Fructose is a particular kind of carbohydrate um, that goes right to the liver, gets converted into uric acid. And we 
about 15 million years ago silenced the gene that creates the enzyme called uricase, which breaks down that uric acid into a waste product. Uric acid, so we lost that gene for a very adaptive reason because the world was getting colder and fruits were less available across Europe and then down into Northern Africa. So what did the human, what did evolution do? It turned off that gene, which allowed then that uric acid to tell our cells to become insulin resistant on purpose hmm. to then store Door. those calories as fat because there was less availability of food and winter was a coming and we needed to then access those repositories of fat for energy during these fallow periods. And are there other mammals that didn't turn that off because they, they can and they can just eat figs all day and it yeah. doesn't convert to fat? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if there were other uh, species that lost that particular gene. I'm sure there may have been, but I mm. think most species probably still have uricase or, or, or produce uricase. Um, so that is a particular kind of, you know, adaptation there that was specifically related to an endocrine response, basically signals of the body telling the body what to do with calories. So I think, you know, if you don't, if, I'll answer other questions specifically related to that, but I, I do want to just sort of Go back to calories energy. in, calories out, though, just because I think that that's, I mean, now it seems like yeah. that's considered old school, it, you know. It's not. There's absolute some truth to it. And I want to just kind of back up there and talk about what energy is, how we get it, and then what a calorie is, because it's a very arcane notion. A calorie, mm -hmm. which is literally a kilocalorie, is a metric that measures the energy required to raise one kilogram of water, water one, one degree, degree centigrade. Right. And so, okay, but in connection with human nutrition, what does that really mean? Okay, it is a measurement of energy. Where do we get the energy? Well, we're heterotrophs. Human beings are heterotrophs. We don't create our own fuel. We create energy at the cellular level, ATP, but we don't create our own fuel. Like a we plant. Like a plant. We don't photosynthesize. Right. So a plant obviously leverages the electromagnetic radiation from the sun in combination with carbon dioxide and water to create, and it's chloroplasts, like macronutrients, particularly carbohydrates, but also protein and fat. Those are the three primary macronutrients. Mm -hmm. You could argue that water is one too, but those are the three primary macronutrients. Plants are known as autotrophs because they generate then their own fuel. They use that fuel for their structure and for the creation of fruits. And then also a lot of those carbohydrates go into the roots and into the soil and nurture microorganisms and travel through uh, mycelium networks and can even feed other trees somehow miraculously. Now we then consume the autotrophs or we consume 
other animals, animals that consume the autotrophs. Mm -hmm. And then we, and that is how we avail ourselves of energy of sort of fossilized sunlight, if you want to get somewhat mm -hmm. poetic about it. So the, of those three macronutrients, carbohydrates contain one gram, gram of carbohydrates contains four calories. One gram of protein contains four calories. One gram of fat contains nine calories. And I'll just add that one gram of alcohol, because it's so prevalently consumed, contains seven calories. And mm. the reason why it's known off, off, often as empty calories, unless you drink it with tomato juice and a celery stock or something like that is that it, it is consumed not in a matrix with any other food that might have some other beneficial attributes to it. It's got no phytochemicals or vitamins or minerals or other attributes to it. It's just, it's a carcinogen. Now you're and, making me want a day drink. And, uh, <laughs> and it, it prohibits the oxidation of fat in the liver and all these other kinds of things. So you can have such, for recreation, but know that you're not really getting any other vitreous attributes from it. But you consume those macronutrients and then they are absorbed um, at different paces uh, within the small intestine into your bloodstream. That's and the, the pacing is just because of the makeup of like how a fat is designed versus a car carbohydrate they just break down differently yes we don't have to get into that but i'm yeah. just assuming yes that's what and you also how much fiber is in your diet so um, fiber is a kind of carbohydrate but soluble fiber um, insoluble fiber just passes right through mm -hmm. and adds kind of breadth bulk. to your stool bulk to your stool um, soluble fiber creates sort of a gel-like lattice structure in your small intestine, which then slows down the absorption of macronutrients into your bloodstream. That's why it's really important to eat fiber because it really inhibits a lot of those carbohydrate or glucose spikes in your and why bloodstream. And you're never supposed to drink on an empty stomach, for example. So that empty calorie isn't just like shooting through you like a arrow right into your bloodstream. But if you yeah. eat, drink after you eat, then you've got fiber in there to like give it some like breaks on it is that the idea yeah you you know a lot of alcohol is consumed with glucose you know mixed drinks or beer or wine etc um so to have like a handful of walnuts prior to drinking is generally a good idea because it's going to create that lattice work in the gut and slow down the absorption um, both of the glucose. So nuts at the alcohol. bar is an adaptive mechanism. <laughs> now, the recommended daily intake of calories in the United States is 2,500 for men and 2,000 for women. Um, that was revised. It used to be a little higher. Unfortunately, the average actual intake is closer to 3,600 calories per day. So you can see that there's a significant delta between what one might 
advisably intake in terms of calories and what one actually does. So the, the, the sort of common theory of calories in, calories out is that one pound of excess fat is equal to 3,500 calories. So if you essentially consume X amount of calories more than you burn, use, and you get to 3,500. Mm-hmm. So if you have 500 more calories per day than you burn for a week, you would gain a pound. That's kind of mm-hmm. like the old school calories in, calories mm-hmm. out argument. And that is in line with how we understand thermodynamics. So the first law of thermodynamics is that energy cannot be destroyed. It can only be transferred, right? Okay, that makes sense. The second law of thermodynamics is that in that transferal process, some energy will be lost, generally in the form of heat. So this speaks directly to what is known as the basal metabolic rate of human beings. So the basal metabolic rate really means how much energy are you burning in the form of calories watching Larry David? Yes. Like watching Curb Your Enthusiasm, snuggled up on the couch. Yes, you're burning about a calorie a minute. Okay? Like That's the average largely person. our brain, correct? I mean, isn't the brain the big gobbler of, you know, when, if we're talking about Yeah, the rest? brain is very energy consumptive. It's, you know, they... 20% of your energy mm-hmm. is burned in the brain. That being said, primarily what's happening is you're just keeping yourself warm. warm. Mm-hmm. So thermogenesis, digestion, um, you know, basic maintenance. Thermogenesis meaning just keeping the body to temp- at temperature. Correct. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, you know, so do the math, you know, you're burning 60 calories an hour uh-huh. just sitting around. And that's okay, what honestly hours. most people mm. are doing. So that would be 1,500-ish, 1,400 calories yeah. per day, more or less just sitting around, right. not doing anything. It's a lot of Larry David episodes. It's a lot, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so Right, and then beyond that, it's just whatever your activity yeah, level so is. So are you exercising? Are you moving your body, you know, you know, how many calories are you burning through, you know, rucking your groceries up the stairs, et cetera. Now, there is a wrinkle to that particular um, equation as well, is that muscle tissue, muscle tissue, even at rest, is more metabolically active than fat. So if someone's basal metabolic rate let's say for the sake of argument was like one calorie per minute, Um, you know, some burning one calorie per minute, someone who had a lot of muscle mass might be burning one and a half, Mm -hmm. two calories per minute, just sitting around because muscle is more energy consumptive. More hungry. Yeah. Okay. What about before we... So that's just like me to say that is a great reason of many to begin to engage in strength training and resistance training, not only does it it ward off 
sarcopenia, you know, the loss of muscle as you get older, you lose about 10% of your muscle mass mm -hmm. every decade. And, you know, one of the leading causes of death of people in their 70s and 80s is accidents or Hiking accidents hip, that like yeah. lead to death. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously tons of good reason to build muscle to prevent sarcopenia. Um, but also it is an incredible metabolic regulator. It is a glucose sink mm. is what they call it. And the other sink meaning like you it just vacuums absorb it, absorbs glucose it. Right, and right. keeps insulin low. Uh -huh. The lower your insulin, the higher your metabolic rate. The higher your insulin, the lower your metabolic rate. Insulin just wants to store fat, you know, really, and keep your metabolic rate low. That's why people type one diabetics you look at them, they're razor thin often, um, in, you know, obviously, unless they're supplementing, which they do have to with insulin that keep that sort of is their weight management technique. But otherwise, their metabolic rate is so high. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and obviously, the, the flip side of that is like ketoacidosis, like, and then obviously, your, your, your blood glucose levels become overwhelmed and so high so you need to take the insulin to clear it out um but you know i was never super into resistance training yeah. ever uh, i was always into cardio training until you know i learned about the impacts that muscle has beyond just like you know looking good or being mm -hmm. able to lift heavy rocks um it is a very very potent um metabolic uh regulator can you um, address the myth or truth of like people who just have a better metabolism beyond this, like hacking it through greater muscle mass or, you know, the other yeah. fasting hacks, which you can also get into later. But like, do are some people genetically born with a better metabolism or not? I'm not sure better is the word. It, yes, there are genetic differences. And again, this gets into like a little bit of the gray area of like my knowledge base. But for example, there have been many arguments made for decades about like the thrifty gene, for example. Mm -hmm. So the thrifty gene is um, that, that some people of some ethnicities, because of severe bouts of famine and food scarcity have developed a thrifty gene that essentially stores, tells the body to store more fat because of the precarity of available calories. So there, you know, I thought some Native American populations, for example, some Pacific Islander uh, populations, I've heard it attributed to like the Ukraine, for example, because there have been mass famines there. Um, so this is mm -hmm. an argument that some people carry that thrifty gene. Um, and one can get tested to see whether you have the thrifty yeah, gene. Yeah, I actually not. did get my DNA tested and there is some thrifty gene presentation. I don't really completely huh. understand, like it's got this gene that's got like, you know, A, B, three, four, five, six, nine, four, P, two, three, whatever, mm -hmm. um, that is, you know, silenced or something. And, um, and that I have a, 
a greater proclivity to store fat, you know, because I'm Eastern European or whatever. And that could be adipose fat or subcutaneous fat. It doesn't matter. I mean, both and or both. Yeah, I think it would. I, I don't think nature care. I mean, I my sense is like it's going to store in your in your subcutaneous fat first. You know. Uh-huh. Um, that hmm. being said, um, there are the more recent studies show that there is very um, that the decline in metabolism is very de minimis between ages of 20 and 60. So we have assumed forever that your metabolism just wanes over time, but the latest research shows that that's simply not true for the overwhelming majority of your life. And yeah, I remember it, reading that. I yeah. thought that was really good news. Yeah. Right, then, like you have, we have a higher metabolism through our teens, but starting in our early 20s, it's fairly constant. Is that the, right? Yeah, when... Uh, corrected for weight, et cetera. So the the headline there is that your metabolism remains steady from about 20 to 60. Right. But what degrades metabolic function is the accumulation of fat. And so, yeah, no, not everyone has the same metabolism, but everyone actually has the same metabolism behind the fat accumulation. And fat accumulation will create its own form of insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. So, which will degrade metabolic function and then put you on this downward spiral. So, um, so yeah, you know, there, there, that's actually, I think, very good news is that if we maintain a healthy diet, you know, if we exercise, if we sleep, if we stress manage properly, et cetera, we can maintain a very healthy metabolism through life um, or through at least our 60s. And then it kind of goes down a little bit in your 70s and 80s. It wasn't even that dramatic. It I wasn't, remember it wasn't when dramatic. I read that and there's things graph. you can do to mitigate that. That's why it's so important. I keep telling my dad, like, in your 70s and 80s, resistance training. Just keep your musculature going. Obviously, great when you fall and you can grip something and grab mm-hmm. and hold yourself up. But again, what like good muscle mass is going to be a, a boon for your metabolic health. It is also, it, it does seem that, and this is I'm just anecdotal, but it does seem like people's appetites tend to decrease as you get into your 60s and 70s. And that may well be just a, you know, a result of the, of metabolism generally lowering it around that age. You know, you hear about that all the time, like that people often sort of start to lose interest in over consuming. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a balance, you know, as certainly as you get older, you want some fat storage because if you get sick or et cetera, you know, and, um, and it's just really finding that Goldilocks zone that I think, you know, we presented sort of the thermodynamics calories in calories out uh, theories of weight management. And there's some truth to that. And, but it's not a hundred percent because there's this endocrine side too which essentially certain hormones in your body tells the body to do different things with those calories. 
So they're both kind of true. Certainly, if you're just going to eat a diet very, very rich in fat, so high caloric and very, very rich in carbohydrates, that's the worst diet because what you have is high calories, high glucose levels, high insulin, high anabolic factors, high growth factors saying store fat in tons of calories. Mm -hmm. So that's the worst diet. And of course, that is the diet that's that we the American have. American diet, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, you can, you know, people play around, you know, with, with ketogenic diets and, you know, there's the carnivore diets and then there's vegan diets. You know, one is essentially to, to frame that in the way that we just talked about it, like the meat focused ketogenic diets, those are focused on really not triggering any insulin. Right. right? Lots of fat, lots of protein, low glycemic. And, and right, exactly. Right. And then the the vegan diets are right. The, are, lots of carbohydrates. Lots of carbohydrates, but very, very low right. calories. Right. And the, the worst is high calories, high glucose, high right. insulin. And right. so, you know, that's why there's no one right formula. Um, there is one wrong formula, but there is a wrong formula. <laughs> yeah. We're experiencing that, um, you Everywhere. Know. And, and so, you know, and, and we can kind of get into diet and what really are some general ground rules maybe at the end, but I, I want to just address a few more things around calories because not all calories are created equal. Obviously we talked about some calories. Uh, trigger certain kinds of hormones that tell you to do different things with those calories. But there's other ways that calories are very different as well. Like, for example, we talked about fructose, you know, calories related to fruit that might tell your, bodies to be, your body to become insulin resistant. There are calories like protein, for example, is a, is a really important macronutrient to look at for a variety of reasons because it's so central to the development of muscle mass. But there's also this phenomenon called the thermic effect of food. So in eating macronutrients, your body requires a certain amount of energy to break down that food. Mm -hmm. So you're taking in the calories, but you're burning certain calories, breaking it down. That's that whole myth about celery. Or I don't Could know if it's a myth, celery. it might be true. Like supposedly like you do whatever you celery, supposedly negative calorically, like you can, your body right. burns more calories right. digesting the celery than the celery. Contains. Yeah. I mean, that might, might be, be true. true for protein has a very high thermic effect because mm -hmm. it is uh, different in nature from carbohydrates and fat. Carbohydrates and fats are actually very similar looking molecules. They're long chain mm. carbon molecules with hydrogens and oxygens on them. And it's just where those hydrogens and oxygens are placed that make the difference between whether it's a carbohydrate or a fat or a certain kind of fat, PUFA or a monounsaturated fat or a saturated fat. It's just where the hydrogens and oxygens lay. So those are easier molecules for the body to break down from an energy perspective Protein is a very highly consumptive energy uh, from an energy point of view molecule to break down, to break down essentially a protein into those core amino acid building blocks that the body then reuses for all sorts of different purposes. You can think of it as that it, it, it requires about 25% of the caloric intake to break down the protein 
As opposed to what for for a fatter? Couple, I don't like know. It's considerably less. Yeah, uh-huh. considerably mm-hmm. less. Interesting. And so, you know, you are burning, I guess, more energy by eating protein, right? Um, than by eating the other macronutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, fiber, which we talked about before, you has a certain amount of calories. Like you might hold a hundred calories of walnuts in your hand and eat them, but because of the fiber is indigestible, mm-hmm. your own your body might only get 90 of those calories. 10 of those calories go to feed your microbiome, your bacteria. Mm-hmm. So yeah, again, not all calories are created mm-hmm. equal. You might eat 100 calories of baked beans, and that's very different than 100 calories of jelly beans because one's going to have a lot more fiber in it. And then there's... Ket- and protein. Yeah. Right. And then there's ketones, which is a particularly kind of energy unit that is, you can take exogenously, like they have exogenous ketones. Uh, what is it called? Beta-hydroxybutyrate or whatever, BHB. And you can take them and that give, will give you a particular kind of energy boost or energy focus, if you will. But generally we think of ketones as a product of a state of ketosis, which is generally associated with like a ketogenic state. Your body creates the ketones. Correct. Endogenously. And this is, you know, points to fasting or um, some other kinds of techniques that one can uh, you know, certain kinds of foods that one can eat that can induce a state of ketosis. So generally, when there's very, very little glucose available for fuel, for the creation of energy, your body then goes into a process known as lipolysis, generally um, triggered by insulin's counterpart from the pancreas, it's another peptide hormone called glucagon. So all these hormones generally have like a counter-regulatory pal, you know, estrogen, testosterone, you know, whatever. Insulin has its foil, it's called glucagon, also delivered from the pancreas in low glycemic states or low glucose states, I should really say. Um, The pancreas will produce glucagon, glucagon, tells the liver to release some glycogen, which is then converted back into glucose in the system. But it also signals this process known as lipolysis, which essentially breaks down the fat in your stored adipocytes, your triglycerides, into free fatty acids and glycerol. These free fatty acids are then used for energy, some of which are converted to ketones. So essentially your body doesn't have a lot of glucose around. Mm -hmm. When it doesn't have a lot of glucose around, it needs a fuel source. The fuel source that is available is then stored fat, which gets broken down into fatty acids and ketones. Ketones are a very wonderful energy source because they cross the blood-brain barrier and your brain loves them. Your heart loves them. 
And do we not produce those unless we are in that is being being in ketosis, as it were, is the only way that we produce ketones. And do we only produce ketones when we're low on low in sugar, low in glucose? And so if you were never in a fasted state and having to extract the, the, the ketones, would you just never produce them? Yeah. In fact, this is one of the great sort of uh, biochemical ironies that exist is that you cannot make ketones in the presence of high levels of insulin. So, hmm. um, so over time, if you consume too many refined carbohydrates, for example, too much, too high blood glucose levels will lead to too high consistent insulin levels, which will lead to insulin resistance, right? So then your cells stop being able to use glucose for the energy for energy production because they're insulin resistant, but it also cannot make or use ketones because the levels of insulin are so high. Uh -huh. So there's all this glucose around that can't be used, but you also can't make ketones. And this is becoming one of the prevalent theories behind Alzheimer's and dementia, because what they're finding when I say they, I mean like research scientists like Benjamin Bickman, um, when they're autopsying hippocampal tissue, what they're finding is that, that there is insulin resistance in those hippocampal cells. That's this locus for memory and for learning and for threat perception, et cetera. And so uh, they can't use glucose, even though it's plenty, Mm -hmm. and the body can't make ketones. And so what does a brain cell do? It just starts to contract and contract and contract and the connections start to become degraded. And then, you know, you start to present mm. uh, the symptoms of Alzheimer's. So that's why Alzheimer's is often called now type three diabetes for that exact reason. last thing I'll say about ketones is that it is peculiar and unique insofar that you can exhale ketones as calories. So if you're in a producing significant amount of ketones, you can literally waste the calories by exhaling. Which is why a lot of- What do you of mean waste them? Like, like literally like- Burn them. They're gone. In a bad way. Well, which is one of the reasons you want to breathe through your nose. Do you no, want to no, preserve no. those ketones? Like, like no. you want to exhale them. I'm just whether you want to or not, you, you can. Do. You essentially burn calories just by exhaling when you're in when you're producing a lot of ketones. That's why people that are in ketosis or a lot of people that have ketogenic diets tend to have sort of acidy, weird breath uh -huh. um, because they're literally wasting the ketone calories by exhaling you can also urinate them out so it is actually to the degree that you want to expend energy mm -hmm. and you want that energy deficit or whatever uh, for weight management purposes or, or what have you um, ketones play a very odd mm -hmm. and unique role 
um, in that way. And that just goes to underscore uh, like how all calories are not created equal. Mm-hmm. Just one more way um, there. So um, in terms of like some of the protocols that I specifically adopted on kind of my journey and how it relates to a lot of the things that we've been talking about, you know, one of the key um, protocols was a 16-8 intermittent fasting protocol. Now, um, there are a lot of like philosophical reasons to fast and to, you know, sort of... Suffer. <laughs> suffer, but also just stop craving so much to really, I guess what I, how I would frame it is to be able to delineate between biological needs and psychological desires. Yeah, manage consumption in t- artfully and uh, to choose. Yeah, and then if you cannot crave or succumb mm-hmm. to your cravings for food, can you, you know, not succumb to your cravings for your phone or alcohol or codependency or gambling or whatever else. So there's a lot of other reasons. And there's obviously baked into all these spiritual traditions and there's reasons, other physiological reasons around the creation of BDNF and autophagy, the recycling of cells and all this kind of other stuff that is very, very interesting, um, you know, around longevity. But as it pertains specifically to weight management and energy balance, you know, Obviously, if you're only eating in an eight-hour window, if you've condensed all the consumption of your food between, let's say, 10 and 6, you are probably also restricting your calorie intake. Probably, but not necessarily. You can fast and eat 20 pints of ice cream in two hours and gain weight. Um, But you're probably not doing that. But even if, if, from my understanding, which is slim, but even if you ate the same number of calories in an eight-hour window as you spread out over a 12-hour window, you would you would use those calories differently, which is another difference in calories in, calories out. Correct. So And explain there, why. There's a couple. So in vivo mice studies, they've shown um, that the – consumption of the same amount of calories over a 24 hour window will maintain Mm -hmm. weight, whether, and the same consumption, the same amount of calories in eight hour window, you will lose Lose weight. weight. Right. I remember that. Um, now there's a whole bunch of reasons why that might be. Um, and of course, despite sharing the best laid plans, we are not mice, but we, um, but if you kind of, tease out some of the things that we just talked about, you know, you could, you might understand why like not eating for 16 hours is going to really help glucose management and insulin management. So you're less likely to store calories as fat. You're more likely to use them and burn them as energy and maintain your insulin sensitivity. You know, if you're only eating within an eight hour window, instead of spreading out you know, all of your consumption across a 24 hour window. And, and of you, course, like this is set against the backdrop of a culture that like now eats pretty much all 24 seven. So, you know, yeah. so yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, so there is that time constriction component, component that seems to be powerful. There's also the calorie constriction component 
inside of that time mm-hmm. restricted, uh, you know, thing that that is also plays certainly a part of it. But again, for me, I think it really points to glucose homeostasis and insulin management. Certainly for me, that was key. You know, as I was running pre-diabetic blood glucose levels at 125 milligrams per deciliter fasting, and then after um, I started to adopt this fasting protocol, you know, three or four months later, I brought that down to, you know, 85 or 90. Yeah, it was, it was fast. It was amazing. And that I would say, you know, is one of the most incredible things that, and we've talked about this before, is that your your body can get so pretty messed up over a long period of time, you know, decades, and you can turn things around pretty damn quick. And yeah. that's incredible. Yeah, I think you, you've often used the metaphor of the polluted river, that yeah. if you just leave it alone, it will generally reverse itself in, unless it's gotten past the point mm-hmm. of no return. And then the tipping point the is tipping the dangerous point. part. Yeah. yeah. And when, you know, if you have, you know, um, proliferative, you know, cancer mm-hmm. that has metastasized, can you turn that yeah. around? I mean, you know, there's actually a whole conversation that we could have around the Warburg effect and, and, and fasting and, and cancer and metabolism but we'll save that for, for another time. Um, but uh, so, so I think fasting and weight management um, and energy balance, it, that's certainly um, like a very, very potent technique. Um, Talk a little bit about um, hot and cold therapy, just because observing your, your personal protocol, it certainly has been pretty yeah. intrinsic to your so be, so I think it's the interesting stacking of various protocols that can create like very, very powerful knock-on impacts. So in addition to that 16-8 protocol, I began to adopt a cold water, a deliberate cold water therapy that is mostly about cold showers just because we don't have a cold plunge here, but sometimes in Topanga when we have a cold plunge, um, I'll do that. And I've typically just absolutely hated the cold. Um, Even more than me. Yeah, (laughs) well, way more. And, um, but again, this is why I think it's important to have these conversations, even though they get a little bit geeky and scientific at times. But if you understand the underlying miraculous mechanisms of your organism, if you understand some of these concepts, it is so much easier to adopt the protocols because you actually understand what's going on and you can start to experiment and tweak without just being paralyzed and just say, I don't know, just tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. I get it. People just like, they don't have the time to break all this stuff apart necessarily. They just want to be told what to do. Fine. But when you understand some basic concepts around metabolism, you know, you will understand why cold water therapy might be so effective right before you break your fast. All right. So give it to me. Okay. So you fasted for 15 hours and 50 minutes before you take that first bite of food. What's going on in your body? At this point, you know, you have very low blood glucose, right? 
So you get into the cold shower. Burr. Your core body temperature plummets from 98.6. It goes down a few degrees. Your internal thermostat sits right up here. Says, oh my God, we've got to get you back up into the Goldilocks zone around 98.6. How are we going to do that? We need to make heat. Process of thermogenesis. How do we make heat? Well, heat is energy. Where do we make energy? We need fuel to make the energy. There's no sugar. There's no glucose around. What do we use? Fat. Yummy, yummy fat. We oxidize fat. We break down mm -hmm. triglycerides into free fatty acids, just like I said. And we use that fat in this process called thermogenesis to reheat our bodies. And that is happening highly effectively in this one form of tissue known as brown fat. So like brown fat is like the good, happy fat. It's brown because it has a high concentration of mitochondria in it. Mitochondria are brown, I think, because there's an enzyme there's in there that requires in iron in there. Yeah. And these are very metabolically active cells that are largely responsible for thermogenesis and they will actually beige your mean caustic white fat they will make your white fat brown and so if you if you get yourself cold regularly yeah. that's what turns your white fat brown or beige yeah it's one of those one of the techniques that will do that and so right so you're just think about it you're fasted low blood glucose, you get cold, your body needs to make you warm, mm. you need a fuel source, there's no glucose, you burn fat. That's another way that the calories in, calories out is broken apart because, I mean, that's, this is all, we're all talking calories out, but it's a different, it's a way that calories out is configured totally differently than, you know, running for 50 minutes on the treadmill. Yeah. So... That protocol right there of fasting and before I break my fast, take a cold shower, that was a massive accelerator mm -hmm. for weight loss and the oxidation of fat for me. It was huge. And just metabolic like function, I think even more important because I, I mean, I like coming back to the, where we started, I think the more interesting and amazing piece of your health journey is not so much that you you physically look more fit, which is great, and I, I like to have you on my arm more now, but you're you really are so much healthier, and that's a whole system thing, and that's where what you've done now is so different than like when you turn forty, you stop drinking and you stopped eating bread, and you lost a bunch of weight, but it really it was just a it was just a weight thing, it wasn't yeah. a metabolic health thing, and that is the game changer. And what I didn't, I mean, I had no, I had no understanding really of how metabolic health is related, but so different than weight management. Yeah. Well, it's an upstream from all the major killers, all the major right. chronic diseases, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, up, Alzheimer's upstream from all of those diseases is metabolic health or metabolic dysfunction. Um, the, the last, I think, little piece here um, relates to muscle, muscle development, muscle management in relation with weight management and calorie restriction. And this is like 
once you sort of really get it all together and want to fine tune all the pieces. So I went from a peak of 204 pounds to 142 pounds. That, that was, was my lightest. Skinny. And I honestly felt pretty good at mm. 142 because you feel so light on your feet. Um, but I had lost all, basically all my muscle mass during that process. And yeah. that's okay. Um, it gave me a base from which to start. So it kind of worked for me. And then since that time, I've put on about 15 pounds, mostly muscle. Um, and now I'm kind of in this sort of fine tuning place where how can I not overeat, not violate the theories of thermodynamics, but also ingest and consume enough protein in order to maintain or even build muscle mass. And this is the, the sensitive little balance. So, you know, let's say I, I exercise a lot and I have a, probably a pretty good basal metabolic rate at this juncture. So I can probably consume 3000 calories per day and remain relatively neutral. But I don't want to consume all those calories all the time. But I still, but if I'm gonna, but if I'm losing weight, I'm also gonna be losing muscle mass. Mm -hmm. So of those calories that I do eat, I wanna make sure that I'm getting enough protein. Because again, that protein will be broken down, catabolized into core amino acids that my body will use for muscle, but also for transport molecules, for enzymes, for neurotransmitters, for, I mean, insulin itself is a peptide hormone. It's made of amino acids. Sometimes we just think about protein as like, we eat a cow and it goes right to our muscle. But no, it's like, we're making hundreds of thousands of proteins in the body all the time. Muscle just happens to be one expression of them. Particularly though, for muscle, you want to make sure that you are eating enough of the what's called the branch chain amino acids, the like leucine, for example. So just briefly on amino acids and protein, there are 21, 20 or 21 amino acids in the body. Your body miraculously endogenously makes 12 of them. So develops and generates 12 of them on its own. But there are nine essential amino acids, essentially the amino acids that you must get from dietary sources. Now, and one of those amino acids that's very responsible for the generation of muscle is leucine. So where are you going to get this protein uh, to knowing that there's a high thermic effect of protein, right? And knowing also that it's about um, four calories per gram, right? And you want to try to get about a gram per pound that you weigh. Now, that is very difficult. And a lot of people argue about this all day. But 0.8 grams per pound, 1.2, I've even heard like Peter Atia is the 1.2 guy, you know. But let's just say I weigh 158 pounds or something. To get 158 grams of protein per That's day crazy. is pretty difficult, of, yeah. you know. 
um, you can do it if you really want to geek out about it. It is very hard to do by just eating plants. Now you can do it by just eating plants. And of course, look at all these unbelievable, completely ripped athletes who are vegan. Are, who are vegan. Yeah. But they they're eating really know carefully. what they're yeah. doing. They've yeah. got nutritionists and trainers and they know all of their uh, you know, protein sources that they get within plants. Yeah, sure. Pea protein. Or look at a gorilla who I think is good the gorilla who is who is a as a vegetarian, but they have to spend like six to eight hours of the day eating. Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't don't. part of it just like how, like how much you're actually going to eat if you're going to, you know, of high quality food, if you're going to be a yeah, vegetarian. Yeah, you have to eat a animal. lot as a vegan. You have to eat a lot, tremendous volume of food. And intention. And you have to really, really yeah. know what you're doing. You got to like, okay, my quinoa and my mushrooms and my pea protein and my soy. And you've got to mm. just really, really know. It's hard to be a casual vegan and get enough protein to maintain or build muscle mass. Mm. So then, okay, like your other choices there are yeah you can eat meat but certainly there's you know salmon and like line caught tuna and these kind of fish and the other smash fish these kind of small oily fishes um, are very potent sources of protein um, if you want to get into whey which is curds and whey so it's you know, comes from the curdling of milk and the creation of cheese, um, and the, then the dehydration and of of that through that process. The removal can, of lactose. So the it's, removal of lactose. Um, you know, whey protein is um, is very very effective if you want to consume a lot of protein without also consuming the fat that comes with it that's highly caloric. So this is like the little, once you start to get really fine-tuned in this process, in this journey, you start to look at those kinds of things of like, how can I keep calorie intake at a certain level while maximizing my protein intake? And, and, and it's not very, it's not expensive. I mean, you know, yeah. high quality, High quality meat sources, fish sources are very expensive. And whey is one of those things that is, you know, is inexpensive and yeah, easily available. And then, of course, you have to train. <laughs> so, you know, you can get all of your requisite protein, uh, but then, you know, you've got to train. You've got to get to the gym or rock or squat or do your pull-ups or do your push-ups, et cetera. And so, you know, that's when you start to really optimize around this kind of balancing act between weight management and muscle management, you know, I think that's, that's where you go. And then so, of course there's all the drug interventions. I mean, let's just like get really, um, let's just dial away from your experience, which has been intensive in your, you know, you're a, you're a citizen scientist who's like really gone into this intellectually as well as experientially. 
But for people who, you know, whatever, work eight to 12 hours a day and don't have the time or the necessarily the inclination or the resources to really geek out on this, like, like give the, I mean, give the top line of like, like, what are the, you know, it's annoying, but what are the five things that are pretty easy to do that you can like start tomorrow? Um, You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's important for it to not feel like you have to become a a health hacker in order to avail yourself of, of these, you know, really like dynamic health changes. So So a, a whole foods, high fiber diet that has a low glycemic load. Okay. So whole foods, high fiber, low glycemic load. That's one thing. Sleep is that's also known as when you go to the grocery store, shop around the outside, right? It's kind of yeah, yeah. Fairly good one. Yeah. Don't don't go in the middle aisles. (laughs) So that is from a dietary perspective. Um, sleep. So everyone knows at this juncture, not everyone, but most people know a lot of the sleep protocols, but sleep is absolutely key to insulin sensitivity and energy levels in general. So sleep, we didn't talk about that that much. Um, I would say a time restricted or calorie restricted focus so some kind of fasting protocol. Even you, if it's 12, 12, 12, or 12, I mean, you know, just so that you're not eating into the midnight hours. Correct. Try to take your last bite of food three hours before you go to sleep and give your body an opportunity to repair and restore. We can't always be in growth mode. We need to also repair and, and restore. So even if it's 12, 12, that's a great place to start. And it's really not that hard. You might not like trigger high level autophagy or whatever, but you will, um, you'll give your, your body a chance to recover and you won't be in a constant state of hyperinsulinemia or high insulin levels. I would say take a cold shower before you eat your first bite of food in the morning. Pretty much everyone has the accessibility to cold water. And so while you're in a quasi fasted state, even if you're not 16, eight, just take a cold shower in the morning. There's so many other benefits associated with that, like prolonged dopamine release. Um, it's great for your immune system, um, but really for your metabolic health, for the reasons that we described, you know, push the edges of your psychological thresholds. Let me add to that because I think it's really important for people who are like where that sounds like just an awful idea. I can't remember who said this, but it was really helpful for me because the the thought of taking a cold shower first thing in the morning just sounds so bad. But the only way I can do it is to start warm and then dial the temperature down. And somebody said that, and then I get down as cold as I can get, and then I can be in there for a bit of time. And, but if I just start going in cold, I can't do it. And then if I do that for a few days, then I can start to get in cold, but it's like, I have to like 
Mm -hmm. I have to coax myself to cold being not as awful. And then my nervous system is like, oh, taking a cold shower isn't as bad. But if I just am like, I'm going to just take a cold shower, I generally won't do it. But that's just a, that's a kind of a way to sneak your way in. And somebody said that cold isn't, I mean, obviously most effective is like an ice bath that's down there at, you know, whatever, less yeah, a freezing level, but cold is cold. Completely subjective. Cold is cold, subjective. Yeah, cold is completely subjective. Some people can um, can get benefits from cold therapy at 60 degrees, you know, and mm. that's not that cold. What's cold is what feels cold mm -hmm. to you. And... Um, and obviously you need to be safe uh, about all of these protocols, but, you know, start with what you can, what pushes the edge of your comfort mm -hmm. and, um, and then go down and down as you can. Usually like, you know, you want four to five sessions per week with a cumulative total of about 12 to 15 minutes of total cold therapy. So, you know, that means like two minutes in the morning, more or less every day or every other day or something like that. You don't have to be completely neurotic about it, but that's really where you're going to see um, the, the real benefits. And there's obviously a psychological benefit, you know, to this as well. I mean, that's why Navy SEALs train in cold right. water, et cetera. It does feel really good after. <laughs> well, it, it also, yeah, it, you know, it, it has, uh, as I mentioned, you know, it stimulates a dopamine response up to 48 hours after the session. Wow. And it will also increase epinephrine uh, um, without increasing cortisol. So it is an, an unbelievable technique. Also, if you want to be focused, if you're about to enter a learning bout or, you know, you need to focus on anything in particular, I mean, we know this just as a product of direct experience. You get a cold shower, you feel pretty alert. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason for that, which is that, you know, your adrenal glands uh, secrete epinephrine and you get the jolt of that particular neuromodulator that makes you feel very alert, but not, but without the cortisol. So mm -hmm. that's a pretty amazing attribute. Mm -hmm. um, so we covered sleep, diet, fasting, cold therapy. And then the last one, it really is resistance training. You need to work your muscles. In fact, what I would suggest is if you have the option between aerobic training or muscle training, opt for muscle training. It's, it's going to be it's gonna, from a thermodynamics perspective, it's going to burn more calories, but long-term, you know, the development of muscle mass has so many beneficial attributes from a metabolic perspective. That being said, you know, ideally you're doing aerobic exercise four to five times per week. Most of that is zone two. So you get your heart rate up to about 60 to 70% of capacity. And then one so or let's just dial. So zone two being where you, you're, you feel like you're working, but you can still hold a conversation. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. So you got your, your heart rate up to 60 or 70% of capacity. So you do that maybe three or four times a week. And then twice a week, you do like a zone five where you're pushing the maximum heart rate. And, um, you know, you're burning different kinds of fuels during zone two versus zone five. Zone two is better for burning fat. Zone five is more about burning glucose and glycolysis because of oxygen debt and a whole bunch of other reasons. But, um, but the combination seems to be 
sort of the, the, With the golden chalice. Three and four. And isn't it also just that, I mean, isn't like weight training, I mean, isn't it just much more time efficient? I mean, you can get a lot more into a 15 or 20 minute workout if you're weight training. And that doesn't even, I don't mean yeah. lifting weights. I mean like plank and pull-ups and you, you can, I mean, though you want, that is true. There is a, you know, work smarter, not harder necessarily, you know, approach to it. Um, but you know, you do want to try to work all muscle groups and, you know, you do want to do this a few times a week. So by the time you really try to cover, you know, arms and back and legs and core and et cetera, you know, if you can fit it into 15 minutes, great. Um, all the power to you. I think that, you know, those sessions are probably more like half an hour to 45 minutes realistically. Um, and, uh, and then there's, you know, flexibility and stability training as sort of the third spoke to the wheel where, you know, you're working on, um, flexibility and dynamic and other forms of stretching, um, and obviously stability work, um, for balance and, you know, all of the other things that are, that are important. So, yeah. So, you know, those are your five. Um, and you know, there's nothing really that new about that, but it's just the understanding mm -hmm. of how those Rubik's cube, how they Tetris together that, uh, I think once you spend some time really understanding it, it's easier to make the equation work. Yeah. And you also can start to recognize where, you know, if you're, if you consider yourself a pretty healthy person generally, or somebody who's interested in your own holistic health, you look at, if you look at those five, you can really see where the, where the imbalances are, you know, where, and what's easy for you and what's hard for you. I mean, I think there are people who are like, you know, they might be an exercise maniac and they think they're healthy because they exercise a lot, but they actually like sleep like shit and they, you know, eat a lot of processed food or whatever. Right. I mean, it's, it's one of the things, I mean, I've definitely gone through many stages in my life where I think I'm a healthy person and I'm actually like, yeah, eh, just kind of, you know, I'm sort of limping along. And, but because I've really got my game on for one or two of those metrics, I'm, I, I have an illusion that I'm healthy and then I, you know, I've had some pretty real health breakdowns. And a lot of that has to do with the things that I don't like, I don't need to sleep. You know, I don't really need to sleep. And, and I, you know, I ate so well for so many years, I can just kind of like eat crap for a year or two. And it, it's like, you can do it for a while, but it, it does, you know, it's, it, there's a, there's a snowball effect to neglecting any of those pillars for any length of time. Yeah. And that was certainly true for you. Yeah. I mean, I think in the end of the day, there's objective measures of success and there's subjective measures of success. I mean, the subjective measures are, you know, do we feel vital? Do we feel energized day to day? And why I think the objective measurements are also very important is that it's very easy to make excuses around the subjective ones of like, oh, I just kind of had a bad night's sleep or I'm just a little off today. Yeah, I can't just, I just sort of can't focus today, but you know, I'll be better to, uh, you know, it's like those kind of subjective 
comments can snowball over time such that you just end up limping through Mm -hmm. life and some of these progressive diseases then start to take root and then gradually and then all of a sudden as Hemingway said about going bankrupt um, (laughs) you know you have diabetes or dementia or even worse you know some mitochondrial myocardial infarction or something so you know um, so I think the objective measures of, of, of health are very, very important. That's why, you know, I am into some of these devices, um, because what you can measure, you can improve. And so blood panels and, um, you know, CGMs and aura rings, I do think that they play, uh, an important role in, um, in really giving people more autonomy and transparency uh, into their own health. And I very much hope that insurance companies end up seeing the wisdom that it is uh, cheaper to cover a CGM than it is to cover someone's insulin for the rest of their life. Um, so, here, here. so there's that. I think the last, you know, bit is like, there is a lot of talk now about like Wagovi and semaglutide, um, you know, mm-hmm. otherwise known as Ozempic and other drugs and prescription drugs and, and, and non and over the counter, uh, like phytochemicals like berberine or whatever, um, as for glucose management, you know, as far like metformin obviously has been a very popular drug with very limited side effects to treat. It's um, a diabetes drug. Yeah. It's a diabetes drug. And people are taking it off label. For like weight management or Uh, well, yeah. Now a lot of people, kind of a lot of longevity guru Mm -hmm. experimenters, are you know using metformin as a longevity drug, Mm -hmm. you know, um, to you know manage blood glucose levels and by extension insulin. Um, You know, Ozempic. You know, particularly, I mean, I, I think there is an oral version now potentially or or maybe that's coming out but it's you know monoclonal infusion so you know it's it's expensive and um and uh and you have to do it every you have to keep doing it i don't know how many the frequency of the dosage i think it's like every week um well i think and you have to keep doing it forever forever, yeah to have the desired impact you know it is like what's called a glp1 agonist so it essentially um works by uh, triggering or reacting with a particular kind of receptor on your cells that essentially mimic, it's a nutrient sensing receptor. So it essentially mimics the fact that you've eaten food, even if you haven't. Um, So it's an appetite suppressant, essentially. It's sort of a... Or a satiety mimicker. Yeah, it's certainly... It is creates a feeling of satiety uh-huh. through a couple different mechanisms. Um, it, it slows gastric emptying, so the food that you have eaten stays in your body for longer. I think the mechanism there is that it slows this process of peristalsis, where that's you know this contracting um, uh, muscle that pushes food down the digestive mm-hmm. tract, but. Um, uh, but also, 
there is some sort of satiety component to that that might be to do with leptin triggering. I'm not, not really 100% sure. I mean, I've also heard a lot of people just self-report a tremendous amount of nausea. So, I mean, if you're nauseous, you're probably not, not eating very much. <laughs> but what it does is that it, it sort of simultaneously keeps insulin levels low while also prohibiting the production and secretion of glucagon. So essentially, we talked about glucagon a little bit before, but glucagon will stimulate this process of gluconeogenesis. The liver creates glucose and the release of glycogen stored glucose in the liver. So it essentially prohibits or inhibits the release of glucagon. So there's no glucose going into the bloodstream from that perspective, but it's also increasing satiety. So there's no glucose coming in in the mouth, Uh (laughs) in the tube. And so insulin levels are staying very low while glucagon levels are also staying Mm -hmm. very low. I mean... This is why it is a a diabetes drug. Yes, that is now being used right as for a vanity drug. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the the issues with it are a, like we said, you've got to be on it forever. B, it seems to cause a lot of nausea. C, if you're not eating, are you getting the other vitamins and minerals and polyphenols and fiber and phytochemicals mm. that you need for your function for your body to function. Mm. Again, maybe if you're paying a lot of attention, you are. Mm-hmm. But see, the problem with these kind of therapeutics or kind of end runs is that they, while they can be effective in highly acute situations, you know, they don't really address the root cause of the problem. So you know, someone could be on Ozempic and just not really change their diet, you know, and then see these results and then just kind of try to stay on Ozempic forever without like really going upstream and saying like, okay, wait a minute. The goal here is to be metabolically Mm -hmm. healthy. You know, I want to run like a Prius. I want to be able to have that flexibility to burn fat for energy, to burn glucose for energy. I want to be like that well-tuned machine. And to do that, I'm going to sleep well and eat well and exercise and do my cold therapy, all the things that we talked about. Um, So that's my issue with, you know, some of these drug treatments is that it, it, it allows people to continue with the same behaviors. And then it also really is another, (laughs) it's just another pharmaceutical. And, you know, while some pharmaceutical drugs can be very impactful, um, you know, our incessant reliance on them, it really takes us down a slippery slope as, as a, as a culture. I mean, you know, I say you can pay the farmer or you can pay the pharmacist. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons, really good reasons, if you care about your health span, um, to pay the farmer and a lot of good societal reasons too, to pay so, good farmers versus paying the pharmaceutical industry. But let me ask you just on a, from, from your understanding, um, cause I didn't, I didn't actually understand exactly what I thought 
Ozempic was really attacking the, the satiety. And so it was essentially dampening, you know, appetite. So people were consuming less. And then I completely make sense that it's not long-term effective unless you're like, then you don't have cravings. So then you eat food as medicine. So you eat really, really well because you don't have cravings for nachos or whatever. But if something like Ozempic and uh, let's, or any, any pharmaceutical that is attacking the, uh, the, the metabolic issue and is lowering your insulin levels and your, 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 your glucose levels, are you also then affecting the long-term knock-on effects of, of these other diseases, heart disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, all of these things that are, are the end game to the metabolic dysfunction? I mean, or not. I mean, I guess that, that's what one thing I that- think, I think you are on some level. I mean, if you go on a Zempic and you lose- 40 pounds primarily of fat, but here's the other problem with Ozempic is that most of the, a disproportionate amount of the weight that people are losing with Ozempic is muscle mass. So that's a big issue mm -hmm. with it. But if you are also morbidly obese, let's say, and you lose 40 or 50 pounds of visceral or ectopic fat, sure like Ozempic, great, um, as a means to sort of right the ship. But again, like long-term, are you really then, once you've managed the acute situation, you know, and taken that stress off of your heart and reduced the inflammatory adipokines coming from visceral fat, okay, that's great. But like long-term, in order to really thrive and, uh, and, and be vital, my opinion would be that you really need to address these lifestyle behaviors that we've outlined. So again, what is modern medicine, conventional medicine so good at? Sort of treating yeah. acute yeah. traumatic symptoms. And yeah, if you have like a BMI of like 50, you know, then that's acute, you know, um, and Ozempic, I think could be right. But if you, you know, if you're essentially like 10 or 15 pounds overweight and you have like, or even 25 or 40 or 50, yeah. you know, milligrams per deciliter, whatever, like Ozempic, come on. I, I just don't. I just don't see it. I just think it's like another crutch, you know, for a society that's hell bent on trying to find, you know, convenient solutions mm -hmm. to inconvenient problems. And again, it sort of, you know, feeds into this MO is that we're always looking for the easy solution and, you know, chronic ease is really the source of a lot of chronic disease. That's where it's coming from. And in many ways, we have to inconvenience ourselves back into optimal health. And once we start doing it, it's really not that inconvenient. In fact, it feels great. And it's like a wonderful journey full of like curiosity and it's gratifying. 
Yeah, like anything else, things that you that you have to work hard at and that you do are always more satisfying. I mean, it's just the way we're that is one of the ways we're designed. Yeah. We were built that way. Cool. I appreciate this opportunity. You asked me a lot of questions that I hadn't thought about, so I had to be on my toes. Well, yeah, we we can live together all day, every day, and just, you know, we talk about our kids, so it's good to be able to pick your brain, babe. You should write a book. Oh, wait, Mm. you are. No. Cat's out of the bag. (laughs) All right. I'll see you at lunch. I'm going to cook up some um, Cheetos and jelly beans. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Skylar. If you are interested in courses on functional medicine, nutrition, gut health, meditation, and Ayurveda, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 130 courses on spiritual and physical health. Just go to onecommune.com trial. Additionally, if you enjoy this show and would like to receive 30 days of free all access to Commune membership, write us a review. On Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the review section and tap write a review and then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review to gain access to more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, all free for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.